When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello and welcome to Changes. I am talking to you from the end of the garden on a scorching hot day. Uh, it is boiling and it is beautiful and I hope you're getting a chance to enjoy the sunshine in some way at the moment. I have a very lovely episode of Changes to bring you now, uh, something that is light and fun and thought-provoking. My guest is Josh Widdicombe. He is a comedian, a podcaster, a TV personality, a writer, the Guardian called him an ace observationalist. You will have seen him on Channel 4's The Last Leg. And maybe you've heard him on the exceptionally popular podcast Parenting Hell, which he co-hosts with Rob Beckett. They have a book now, a spin-off of the podcast called Parenting Hell. The paperback is out at the moment and I had so much fun reading it. It's not often that I will literally laugh out loud at a book, but I was lying in bed last night chortling away uh, at the book and I really really enjoyed it so it's a very fun very real warts and all take on parenting. Josh is an exceptionally busy man so I was delighted to have him on changes. Let's begin. Josh Whittacombe hello welcome to changes. Absolute pleasure to be here delighted. First of all you're a fucking rock star you're a tour it's insane. <laughs> it was weird. Do you know the moment? Because we did the O2 and Wembley Arena with this other podcast, Parenting Hell. And obviously I've done lots of tours where you're doing stand-up. But I've only ever done theatres for those. And mm. I only ever will. I'd like to say that's through a creative choice, but that's through demand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, that's, he's got a lot of conviction in that no, statement. No, that he'll only ever do theatres. That's an economic decision rather than a creative <laughs> one. <laughs> um, uh, but the only bit where you really feel like, oh my God, this is like being in a band, yeah. is when you're in an arena and you walk from the dressing room to the stage and yeah. it looks like every documentary you've seen. It's a spinal, where, you're in Spinal Tap, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Whereas when you're in a theatre in, you know, Buxton, yeah. it's literally just, you're, it's like it's like being in a, how you imagine walking on stage at a panto is, rather yeah. than this is like what it must be to be, you know, you're walking through and there's a man with a torch showing you the way to go and like, yeah. see, and that's the bit where you go, fucking hell. Yeah. You've just finished this tour, right? Yeah. And like, it's a genuine arena tour. So this huge tour. Did you ever feel like Parenting Hell would get to that 
Like it's it's no, it's the biggest a podcast can be. It's yeah, it was mad. If I've learned anything through my career, and whether I have or not is a it's a different question, I suppose. It's that like um, you just can't have expectations. The two things I've done that will be mentioned in my obituary if I'm hit by a bus tomorrow will be Last mm. Leg and Parenting Hell. And mm. both were like accidents, really. Like yeah. um, Last Leg was going to be 10 episodes during the Paralympics in 2012 and it spun out to a decade. Parenting Hell was meant to be us talking during the lockdown. It spun out. And I think actually that's a huge advantage to these things because there's literally no expectation on them. Right. Both of them were allowed to grow organically. Mm. And and also I think the second thing that you get from that is an audience that finds those things that have grown organically, they feel much more loyalty to them because they're like, I remember seeing that thing. I remember when I was at university and I came home drunk one night and turned on the TV and there was an episode of Peep Show and I was like, I didn't know what it was yeah. and it was on at 11.30 or whatever and I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. And that's so much more exciting than going, oh, that's the thing that's on all the billboards that I've been told to watch right. by. Yes, yeah. so you feel you like know. you've come across it, so it's yeah. your own little journey with it. Yeah. Exactly. It's so There's true. Nothing worse than being told this single you're about to listen to is going to change your life. You'd exactly. ra- much rather not think that because every time you're like, well, it's under promise over deliver. Is Completely. That the phrase, it no, is. it is. It is. Yeah, I totally get you. I suppose all you can do is do things you want to do. And then hope yeah. that people will like them. The moment you try and second guess what's going to be successful, you're in trouble, I think. That is literally the essence of everything in terms of creative, I think. Yeah, you know, from totally. working in the music industry, you can hear. You can hear when people do that, when they're doing what they want to do and they're truthful to them. Or when you know, their song has been decided in a boardroom and by totally. 14A. And you can hear it. You yeah, really can. Totally. Same with film, same with everything. It's there. It's just... It's authenticity, isn't it? That's the Do thing. you know when you can also see it is um, social media is yes. when someone's gone, the new thing, I've got to do reels. Or like... <laughs> I loved your attempt at a reel, by the way. <laughs> I'm just tell, tell, remind the listener what that was, please. What was my attempt at a reel? I can't even you, remember. You're, I think your first attempt at a reel, it was hailing... In your garden, and I think you got your your wife oh, yeah, yeah, someone yeah, to yeah. film you, or you were going to go and stand in the hail, and that was yeah. going to be your reel, and then you just opened the door and went, oh, it's no, no, and just closed the door again, and that was it. But that that's that's suppose <laughs> the whole thing's a metaphor for my relationship with reels, right? So listen, we're here to talk about change, adult change, change you want to see, and and childhood change. So let's start with that. I watched a bit of your who do you. Who do you think you are? God, that yeah. was really interesting. So I saw your parents and I saw your primary school where you grew up and all of that. Yeah. But th- you've cited a kind of a time when you were 11, that transition yeah. from primary school to secondary school as your big change. So tell us about that, please. So my primary school, I mean, it's just chocolate box kind of village in Devon. Um, right. Four kids in my year, about 40 kids overall. So I had four years in my class. So I... You know, the caveat of all of this is when you're a kid, nothing feels weird because you presume that's what everyone's going through. Sure. So I didn't realise that it's quite weird and probably challenging for a teacher to teach an 11 and a 7-year-old at the same time. Oh, my God. And I was a big fish in a small pond, probably. I I was the lead in the school play in the final year, that kind of jazz. Um, Yeah. 
Which isn't, you know, it was Robin Hood and there was two boys in my year, so it's a 50-50 whether I'd get to do it anyway. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And what kind of a kid were you? I was obsessive. So I was right. obsessive about football from the age of seven when World Cup 90 happened. Because mm. obviously you don't have the internet. So I just read my World Cup sticker album again and again till I... I've got it here and I know wow. it. Do you know what I mean? Wow. I still know it. Yeah. I still recognise every page. I became obsessed about the charts. Classically, I'd record the charts on tape. And I wouldn't just record the songs, but I'd record the top 40 and then listen to the top, like learn the chart positions and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so I was a kind of weird, obsessive little kid yeah. about things that I'm really glad I was obsessed about because they're really... I mean, <laughs> they are, still, still it's knowledge that's held now. me in good stead. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love that stuff still. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of what I was into. And I was into TV massively, neighbours and everything. I think because I grew up with not many people around me. Yeah. I was obsessed with stuff, with um, television and music, computer games, football, mm. like exterior stuff. Did you have siblings? So I had half siblings that right. lived in uh, Cornwall. So I was so in your house, child. it was just you and your mum and dad. And my gran lived in the other half of the house. And my wow. gran was this incredible... She's probably the most amazing old person you could meet in that she was a, she used to be an actress. Right. So our outside of the house was my mum and my dad and me and my parents were kind of old hippies. So that was kind of, um, it was messy and they had horses and stuff. So there was like, you know, bridles hanging on the sofa or whatever, yeah, yeah. that kind yeah, of yeah. thing. And then the other half of the house was like, you'd go in there and she'd be smoking silk cut and she'd be watching television and telling you about, the actors and like and yeah. stories about them and like she was gregarious and she was funny and she was kind of she was essentially my sibling if right. that makes sense yeah yeah it was incredibly close to her and you'd go in and she'd just be entertaining and she'd drink Nescafe and smoke silk cut and kind of hold for what a life god what a yeah. life love it she was incredible and so I felt maybe the combination of being the only child at home yeah and the small class at primary school I was very cocky is the wrong word but maybe you know confident and very yeah, yeah. just felt comfortable I was, in your skin yeah yeah, yeah. and it's then like, it's like the opposite of being lost isn't it it's kind of like you're, you're seen you're seen and yeah, probably, yeah yeah I was very seen yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so the change was going to secondary school right and I never thought and I still don't think that that was uh, harrowing or difficult or horrific, but it just totally changed who I was. And it was really interesting looking back how I adapted to it. So my secondary school had a thousand people in it. It was an unremarkable, nice comp in a town on Dartmoor. Mm -hmm. But there was 200 kids in my year and I was used to four. I just disappeared and I did everything I could to disappear and blend in. To blend in. Yeah, you say yeah. you say in your book, suddenly the cash I had earned through being across every storyline in Neighbours, possessing rhythm as a dancer on cassette and hosting a marble-themed after-school club seemed worthless. In fact, with the last of these facts to get out, it could have been actively damaging. Yes, so suddenly you're kind I of looking at everything that you wear and trying to bury it. Yeah, totally. And this is the weirdest one. It's like, so because my parents were hippies, I was a vegetarian. Mm. Like, I couldn't, let that get out because any difference was, and I don't, I think this is internal. I don't think 
it wasn't that I was in a situation where difference was exploited and you'd be mm. whipped mm. in the dressing room like I was at Eton mm. or something. Do you know what I mean? A dressing room, changing room. That's yeah. uh, t- 20 years in showbiz for you. <laughs> <laughs> just a little slip there. Just a showbiz slip. Um, but uh, I just... I don't know what it was. I had friends, but I was on the peripheral of the group. I don't know. That is how I coped with this change. Yeah. And it wasn't, I don't even believe it was conscious. But I'd gone from being the lead in the school, play at primary school, to the thought of doing anything like that right. was a million miles right. from what I would do. I would never have done anything that could have led to my name being read out in assembly in a positive or negative manner. Yeah. So did that change how you were internally, do you think? Or were you still able to be Josh at home as you were? Or do you think, I mean, obviously fucking puberty, teenagers, like that, you are going through such huge change physiologically, hormonally, everything anyway. But do you think, I suppose, did it manifest in some way, this kind of... I think it it made me internalise everything. Right. You'd never have known it, but there was much more going on in there than I would be willing to discuss. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This even hap- was still going on when I got into comedy. Right. And through the first 10, 12 years of doing stand-up, where I was like, I don't want to share anything of my life. And I kind of justified to that to myself. Like, I'm not one of those people that's going to sell my life. Right. To... I'm not going to commodify what goes on in my yeah, kitchen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 But then when we did Parenting How... I started opening up about stuff because you're just on a podcast and people in- re- responded incredibly to it. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God, people are much more uh, responsive if you're actually honest about yourself and you're actually open with yourself. Yeah. And je- at the same time, I started doing therapy because I was feeling quite down. Right. And that made me open up. Then it's just it's like a snowball in the last few years where I've gone, fuck, it's quite it's quite helpful to talk to people about things. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> but it's also it's also must be so liberating as well. You, it's must, incredibly you must feel liberating. lighter. You must feel lighter kind of just to know that I suppose it's just that it's just that the essence of connection, isn't it? You feel less alone when you know that everyone else is going through the same shit you are. Totally. Mm. And even doing this, right? I mm. would have been Hiding everything behind jokes. I'd been very surface about it. Yeah. If you if I'd done this three years ago, it would have been almost like I don't even think it's consciously, but mm. I think subconsciously I'd have been like getting through it without revealing anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And you would have been really good at it because you're a comedian. So you would you know, there's that that's yeah. it's really and you're yeah. kinda of like, I can do that, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah I got got through it. I was funny about so I had some funny details about my primary school or I did this or I did that, but I wouldn't, yeah. there wouldn't have been any of, you wouldn't have got to know me at all through it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank God. Thank, thank God. God. That's great. Thank so, God. So listen, we've had some amazing comedians on this podcast mm. and I'm so fascinated in, so so many comedians had proper jobs. So Jimmy Carr worked for Shell. Ramesh yes. Ranganathan was a teacher. You were yeah. a sports journalist. Is that well, correct? Well, very low level. So yeah, but still, I, how did you get from there to comedy? So I finished at uni in Manchester in 2004 and then I wanted to hang around in Manchester because all my friends were still there. Yeah. I didn't know what I wanted to do in my life. No one really does at the age of 21. 
I yeah. find it a bit suspicious when they do. Agreed. And so I just got I got a job in Waterstones and worked there for a year and then I moved to London. Me and my girlfriend moved to London because it felt like living in Manchester you were um you were slowly being the last people at the party. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And so get out before it gets three people left. And so we moved to London and I was just looking for jobs. There was one as an editorial assistant on children's magazines. And so it was Dora the Explorer, Angelina Ballerina and Mr Bean. And uh, I went for the interview and I'd written a bit for like the student paper and stuff. So I had that. But... Also, when I was at Waterstones, I'd been, by coincidence, in the children's books department. That was my department. So I knew fucking loads about (laughs) children's literature. Great prep for being a dad as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I was like 21 or 22, sorry. Mm. And so obviously I aced the interview because I knew so much about children's literature. Got that job. And I was like, oh, I quite like working in publishing and writing I really wanted to be a writer in some way Mm. so I did a journalism postgrad from that got onto the journalism postgrad from that and then got a job at the Guardian like uploading which is like taking the articles and uploading them onto the website I didn't get much further I was like a sub-editor I was never at football matches I was never like on the phone to an agent going is this move transfer move going ahead or anything I was very low level I wasn't very good at it and I wanted to be a writer of some sort. I want me and my brother had written some scripts and sent them off to like Radio 4 and stuff and got a bit of got nice feedback and stuff but not got anywhere and I was told if you do stand up that is the way of getting in. Mm. If you want to be a writer of comedy, if you do stand up and you get somewhere, suddenly all the doors open up for you. Yeah. Suddenly you someone will ask you for a script. You won't be sending it yeah. with a covering letter. And so I only started stand up for that reason. I never saw it as the long-term kind of thing. And then it just snowballed from there. Wow. And then how did you find being on stage? Like, starting stand-up, was that terrifying? Was that, I mean... Yeah, it was terrifying. Do you know what I did? I signed up to, like, a beginner's comedy course. Brilliant, It was, like, a a below a pub on a Tuesday evening, and you'd all sit around. And it was good, actually, because it wasn't about, this is how you write a joke. It was a lot of improvisational games and stuff to get your confidence up to go on stage and feel Mm. like find out what was funny about you and all that kind of stuff yeah I did that because I thought there was a gig at the end and I was like if I've signed up and I've paid money I'll have to do the gig that's the only way I'm going to do it Mm. I don't know how I did it because I was never good at public speaking like my voice would waver and I'd go Mm. red and Mm. I don't know how I did it really yeah but you must be pretty good at it, Josh, because you yeah, got an I, amazing career I, out of it. I I suppose I, I mean not I suppose I was good at it because yeah. obviously no one's good at it when they start. But I was good enough. I was I carried on. Yeah, yeah. I really went for it because I yeah. was like, this is it. This is the thing I can do. Yeah, this is something I, I'd always loved comedy. I've always come at it from a I love comedy point of view rather than a um, I want to be on stage point of view. Yeah, so you come at it from a fan perspective. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And so when lockdown was going on and people weren't able to perform and they were, there were some comedians that were like, this is my lifeblood. Who am I when I'm not on stage and all that kind of thing? Right. I was fine. Yeah. I was writing my first book and I was doing the podcast and I was like uh, doing a bit of the last leg from the 
attic and it was fine because as long as I'm I enjoy the writing or the creating or the this thing where you're chatting and you don't know where it's going to go more than I don't need the audience in that some comedians come to it they need need the validation right yeah yeah I don't feel like I'm like that I've got lots of issues but that's not one of them (laughs) here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So, in lockdown, you you sent a voice message which is transcribed in this book, Parenting Hell. Mm. To Rob Beckett saying, I've had an idea. This is what I think we should do. And it's so interesting reading the book, like as someone who like has a podcast and, you know, it's just seeing your train of thought into what you thought you should do and how you did it. And it it just makes so much sense when you read what you send to him. It's yeah. just like, we should talk about being parents. We should talk about being crap parents. And like, we should interview other people about it. And, and then people might like it. Like, I know it will be funny. Um, yeah, it's just so like in my in my head, the best ideas in the world, creative ideas are the really simple, straightforward ones, the ones that you don't have to over explain. Totally. They just, and that is such a good example of that. So well, relatable. It's, it's like that elevator pitch thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, um, is that the thing where you any good idea you can do in 25 words or whatever the kind of rule is? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you cited your adult change as being becoming a parent. Yeah, although I think I it's taken me years to deal with it, in a way. My daughter's five and my son's two. Right. And it's not a, and then the scales fell from my eyes and I knew what really mattered in life. It's not that at all. <laughs> it's, um, it's, I'll be honest with you, who I was when I became a parent to who I am now and probably, you know, I'll look back and go and I wasn't even has been a really tough change over five years. And I was ready to be a parent in the sense that I was wanted to be a parent, but I wasn't, I hadn't made my peace with that other life that I had disappearing. Some people can just do that. And I found that really, really tough, I think. I didn't think I realised it at the time particularly the first couple of years. And it was weird. I used to get so much FOMO and anger towards... We were the first people that had kids yeah. in our friendship group. And it was fucking difficult being on those WhatsApp groups when people were organising the things that you used to go to. Yeah. It was really tough. And I know that... Sh- isn't the main thing but that was something I really struggled with no but that is that is I mean your social life your your connection your friendship connections that is such a a huge key to feeling fulfilled you know so if if that's taken away it's a huge part of who you are yeah um how did you and your partner Rose like how did you approach parenting 
I suppose, like, were you pretty 50-50 with it? Did you, you know, how did you take on yeah. the burden of the fucking work? Because it is so much work. Yeah. Well, the start, the first few weeks, obviously, as the man, you are, you've not got much, your role is doing everything to make the mum comfortable while breastfeeding yeah. or... yeah. So that you're on toast duty. You're on yeah. huge amounts of water because obviously breastfeeding is incredibly dehydrating. Yeah. You're on tidying the house, cooking the food. All, and in a way, that's yeah. the easiest bit because... It's you, purposeful. You've got you can, you've you got exactly something you can do. You know exactly what your role is. You can do it well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I can take yeah. the bins out all day, yeah. mate. I'm yeah, good at yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose it gets more difficult when it gets... The lines get more blurred. Yeah. And obviously in my job as well, you know, it's so random. Right. In a way, I think it would be much easier if I worked nine to five or ten to six because I'd know every day this is what I do. I get home and then I can do bedtime. Sure. You do them all or whatever. But I could be away for four days and then I could come back. You know, you get back at two because you've been gigging in Leeds or whatever and then you... But you've been away four days, so you're not going to lie in. You wanted to see your kids. and you, So there's, it's not, it's really yeah. difficult. And there's the added thing of, I'm working within the house. So there's no real line between yeah, the two things. That's hard. That's hard. <laughs> because even if you bolt the door shut behind you, you yeah. can still hear the totally. screams and the horror yeah. movie noises coming from downstairs. Yeah. And they physically, I mean, I don't know if it's this case for you, but they physically affect me. Like when you hear your kids screaming, it's like, it's, I can't just ignore it. Some people are better than others, but I can't do that. It's yeah. so distracting. No, it's, it's impossible. If I could hear my child screaming downstairs now, I wouldn't be engaged in this conversation. No, you'd be and picturing that's it. Not, that's not because I'm a superhero. That's because like... <laughs> I'm a great dad, guys. If there's a child screaming, I'd be gone oh. in a second. <laughs> can I just um, can I just talk about two of my favourite bits of you talking about the lead ooh. up to to the baby coming? Um, first of all, and anyone who's who's a parent or um, who has friends or family in their life who've had kids, you might be able to relate to this. You know, the the real blind optimism going into a birth, the yeah. bag packing. Can we talk about the fact that you brought Charles Dickens' Great Expectations <laughs> with you in order to finally read it while your wife was having her child for the first time. Not, not during the not, not during, not during the labor. I'm not a monster. It, but I love the lead up. But I mean it's so it's such a brilliant like of all the books. You couldn't make the great expectations. <laughs> but so I just good. had visions of Shelby breastfeeding. Do you know what misled me? My friend said uh, when we had the kid, it was during the, uh, I think it was during the ashes or something. So, and so that it was on all night. I'd sit up and breast, uh, my wife would breastfeed and I'd listen yeah. to the ashes and she'd listen to podcasts and we'd watch the Sopranos. And, yeah, yeah. And none of this happened. I thought it was all going to be downtime. I thought it was going to be like, I don't know, like just us on the sofa. Like, I thought it was going to be like being hung over. Do you know what I mean? I thought, <laughs> that's what it I mean, sometimes it feels like that. You know, yeah. you've been drinking tea, tequila the night before. Yeah. But yeah. And then my other favourite bit is when you're talking about the emergency cesarean that, that your partner has to go through, Rose. And 
and there's a line that made me nearly fall out of bed when you said, all we are doing is staring at the divider, waiting for our daughter to appear like a high stakes version of Argos. (laughs) (laughs) It is like that. I don't know if I say that in the book, but like, I remember the blood splattering on the curtain as well. And then she's just brought up and she looked livid. Yeah. And... There's, I mean, I've lost my phone, but there's still photos on my phone of that the, the um, midwife took of her, and it's it is oh, it's awful, a classic kind of, but it is like alien, yeah. like oh, no, it's it photos yeah. of a baby coming out being of a stomach, out of a stomach, and like, being lifted out of a stomach, and like yeah, ugh, like weird bodily fluids that are blue. It's 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 I, so like that, and they're so, I mean, obviously. It's, you know, in the same way you're like, is stand-up scary? These, I'm like, how are these people not yeah. grossed out? But obviously yeah. it's so mundane to them. The second, because we had an emergency C-section the first time, the second time we had to have a planned C-section because right. they just advised it because of how the first time had gone. And they were incredibly chilled. Like, yeah. it was like they were just chatting to us. Like, they were just... Mm. serving you at a shop or yeah. it was mad they would just be like you know oh so are you going on holiday or you did yeah. all this and you're like who's looking after your other kid you're literally like yeah being they're, about to, they're about to cut cut your wife open literally yeah. and take a living thing out of her belly. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly it was so mad so tell me then what else once your first kid was born what other preconceptions were smashed to smithereens upon I, real life I, baby I, I in the think world? I the sleep thing that was... Now, everyone knows the sleep's bad, right? Obviously. Yeah. I didn't understand when it would be bad in the sense of I thought, oh, it's going to be difficult getting through the days when you're tired. But actually, I could get through a day on four hours sleep fine. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That's the amount of things you've done in my life before that uh, and since probably on a hangover, you you can you can function on a day with no sleep. I thought that would be the bad bit, but the bad bit was the night, the 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 unending frustration of the night compared to, and that feeling that the world is asleep, but you are not asleep. I'd say that was the kind of um, that for me was the, the most difficult that that unrelenting fear as you approach the evening that here we go again yeah yeah it's kind of exacerbated knowing that you you could be and should be asleep yeah like in the daytime it's easier just to get on with it isn't it being tired because everyone's awake but yeah yeah it's that feeling of the night and the isolation that's when you have your what have we done feeling (laughs) that everyone has in the first three to six months i think um, maybe longer. It was just an incredibly tough start, but I mean, it's such a cliche. It's just so the best thing we've done in hindsight. Yeah, I think I think the thing that is most underrated about having children is how entertaining they are. Like, yeah, they're they're better than television. They're so it's so, I I spend ninety percent of my time laughing at my children. Yeah, it's great, and you just go. I taught her to ride a bike the other day. And you're like, this is brilliant. Well, this that's is... milestone parenting. Oh, exactly. And milestone parenting is usually 
a bit I I think the thing with parenting is the best bit is often the bits that take you by surprise or the bits that yeah. you know the first time they see snow actually is normally crap because they're freezing and they're crying or whatever and you yeah. just get a fight yeah. with them with a snowman or whatever yeah and the but actually that was one of the first milestones where you're like oh believe the hype on this one yeah that bit when she cycled off was incredible and then she's just cycling around and around and you don't have to run with her or anything so I'm just sat in a park on a bench with a cup of tea watching her cycle around and around and you're like this is as close to kind of a zen a joyful moment in my life as I can get as you can get yeah 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 yeah. I mean you you really have to spend a lot of time in parks when you have a pet when you're a parent of young children I, I found in lockdown I found that incredibly difficult because they closed all the public toilets. I still yeah. have PTSD from um, my kid just having to shit under trees in our local park. Oh. It was, I'm honestly, Josh, I, yeah. I, it, it's not, it's, and ev- everyone was at it because the kids I, needed I know, to be in the, the park. But it wasn't just kids. In Victoria Park, <laughs> no. they closed the parks and there'd be, I mean, this is kind of, Victoria Park's quite a kind of middle class park now. Yeah. And the, a sign of that is like, no toilets in there, but it's a blazing hot Saturday or whatever. And there'd like be a bush, but with like a queue. Like they were just queuing. To... <laughs> <laughs> Someone so decided that was going to be the, bu- yeah. the, the toilet. That bush. Yeah. Someone made that I decision. I don't know. How, I get you've got to close it, but I don't think this is as advantageous in the fight against COVID as the park thinks, <laughs> in that we've just moved the pissing from. Also, can a I just say, as an Irish person, that is the most English thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Any chance for a queue? Oh, we'll just queue behind those people because they're shitting behind a bush, so we'll do, should we do that? Yeah, let's queue. Incredible. You've got, you've got to see that when you're the park ranger or whatever and go, yeah. do you know what? I don't think this policy's working for us. <laughs> So, quick question before we get on to your last change. So you, obviously, this idea came to you in lockdown when you had one child. Now you have two children. Mm. You are now so fluent in terms of being able to talk about being a parent and and talk about your kids and the experience of bringing Mm. up kids. How has that changed you, I suppose? You know, making this thing that you're going through. It's made me much worse company at dinner. (laughs) Has it? (laughs) Um, I think it's exposing. Do you know what I mean? In a good way. I'd be lying if I said I didn't at times panic that this was going to come back on me when they were teenagers. Mm-hmm. So I'm very careful to never slag them off. When you're talking about the negativities of parenting, you're talking about your own issues, your own yes, fuck-ups. Yes. You're yeah. not going, my fucking child. And we have had yeah. guests, oh, I won't name, who've yeah. thought that that's what it is. And you're like, this is... They come in Weird. and go, he's a fucking asshole. Yeah, and you're like... How old is he? Two. Okay. <laughs> okay, right. I mean, maybe you should think about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm very careful of that. But... Yeah. Because I, I believe that that's the way to do it. Yeah. And I don't believe that I've said anything that I wouldn't stand by and say, you know... Yeah, when your but, daughter's 15. But I do worry yeah. that that's going to be a different... To discuss the semantics of the podcast, the things I've said in the podcast, where the 15-year-old might be... But I worry about lots of things. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm Isn't a that mad warrior. though? Like, 
I've never really thought about like you know you think about how old you know roughly what age we are like what 30s or 40s and then we have our parents and you have your memories of your older relatives mainly in the format of photographs right sometimes video as well our kids or the next generation are going to be able to remember us through podcasts like yeah. it's like a, an entire like new way of documenting our lives so it, it's it's kind of interesting isn't that like when you're old and decrepit and about to die your grandkids will be able to listen to parenting hell and, yeah. and hear these cut this incarnation of you as a dad as a new it's kind i of think cool. it's great in that sense i really you know and obviously the, there's the same thing with photos on phones and stuff there's so much more record of childhood now particularly if you right. particularly if you run a parenting podcast that you go you know, I don't know. Is my son going to, at the age of 22, work his way through 2,000 hours of parenting hell or whatever it will be by then? I don't know. But I know that my gran, who I talked about earlier, I've yeah. got a scrapbook of all her stuff, and I love that. And yeah. that's just a scrapbook of, you know, being in theatre and stuff. And I yeah. love that. So I... You'd hope that that's a really nice thing to leave for your children. Okay, so let's talk about the final question then, please, yeah. Josh. So the, the change you would still like to see, I suppose, um, to your own life or the mm. world around you. So I said I wanted to stop drinking. So this is day 50 of not drinking today. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. So I've started that change that I hope will now continue forever, I suppose. Okay, so first of all, what was the incentive? I think I had a problem with drink. I genuinely think I had a problem with drink. I don't, actually, I don't think that. I know that. And Mm. I think it took me years to make my peace with that and understand it. Not that I drunk all the time or that I would need a drink to function, but if I drunk, I couldn't control it. So it was all or nothing? All or nothing. Total binge drinker. Mm. Um, Just couldn't stop if I started and would right. find myself, just wouldn't remember what had happened. Right, yeah. So, yeah. and I was like, I've, done this one too many times now with kids it really it, that's hard it's okay. not a laugh yeah. anymore is it mm, mm, it's mm. not the escapades of your 20s are the worrying and slightly sad things of your early 40s yeah 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 i'd say yeah. so i started stopped started stopped started yeah, you know, as people do and yeah. now um i think i've got to but i think i also more importantly I really, really am excited about not drinking. I've done loads of things since I stopped drinking in these 50 days. I was going to say, how and hard was it? it? The first thing I did was my 40th, which oh, is wow. mental. Oh my God, that is mental. You that was six you days after. In. You are, yeah, I know. But there was always stuff after. Yeah, so of course, my, you're right. There's always something. There's yeah. always something. So I did my 40, 40th. I've done the tour, the Parenting Hell tour. And... Mm. I've enjoyed everything more. And really? Yeah. But do you know what's the real one? It's going to see bands. And this is not 
I really hasten to add, I wish I could drink in the sense, not I don't, not that I not that day to day I go, I wish I could have a drink. I would love to be one of those people that could drink. But You're I'm, exactly like my husband. He's exactly the same. He's yeah. all or nothing. He stopped and he's like, I wish I could just have one pint of Guinness with you. But I just like, can't. I wish, but so that's yeah. fine. So that yeah. is what it is. I don't wish I could drink day to day. It would be lovely to be one of those people. And I'm not in any way. So the reason I say that is, God, I do. I'm not someone who's going, everyone should do it because it makes your life better. No, they shouldn't. Because if you can enjoy yeah. drinking, fucking do it. Right? Yeah. yeah it's yeah, not yeah. like this is better. Everyone stop. It's like this is better for me. And so yeah. um, going to see bands has been incredible. Yeah. I didn't realise how unengaged I was in bands when I was drinking. I didn't realise how much I was thinking about going to get the next drink, how much I was thinking about have I got enough drink to get me to the end of the gig. I remember going to see David Byrne in New York and I'd gone to New York to see David Byrne. And I remember watching it and I had a glass of wine. And what my main memory of it is being worried the wine was going to run out. So pacing this wine throughout because for some reason when I start drinking, I find it re- I couldn't not have a yeah. drink in my hand. Yeah. And now you'll watch bands. I went to watch Blur. I went to a gig. I went to see a band called High School on Wednesday. And it flies by and you enjoy the music and you're in that moment and you're not in a different moment. Mm. And... That's a real change that I've enjoyed. You're much more, I, I, not you, I am much more present in that situation. How do you find socialising now? I think it's difficult. I still find it difficult to turn up to things. I've always struggled to turn up to things. I think I started drinking properly in a big way to break down social boundaries and worries. Yeah. I think the day I went to university was the day I started drinking in a bad way because it was a way of relating to people. And it was a way of forming friendships and it was a way of forming bonds with people. And so I could go and meet people I'm close to and I'd be totally fine. But it's like a social situation with people I don't really know is still tough. Not tough in, oh God, I want to drink, but tough in... um Oh God, I wish I didn't have to do this. <laughs> I think that's very, very common. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Especially with men. I don't want to gender gender yeah. that, but I do, it does feel like women find that stuff a little bit easier. Yes, definitely. Yeah. But the things I miss aren't huge. I, my hangovers led to so much anxiety and feeling low for days. Yes, yes. That I don't have that anymore. And suddenly each day is... Great. I'm not trying to get through the days. And I wasn't a, like a regular drinker. Someone said to me, a really, oh, fucking hell, when you stop drinking, it's non-stop buzz phrases, isn't it? But um, one of the good buzz phrases, it's like, it's like constantly, it's like following yeah. one of those annoying people on Instagram, isn't it? A lot. But yeah. um, they said, I was like, but I don't drink every day. And they said, it's not how much you drank. It's how you drank. It's how you drank. And that's right. a real, that is exactly what it was. I yeah. had a, and still do, you know, I always yeah. would. If I started drinking again, I wouldn't be able to, go, I, I can't go back because I know I'll be the same. 
Yeah. But I'm not, I'm, for the love of God, I'm not someone who's going, everyone should, or, but. No, of course not. For me, it's such an important change I've needed to make for years. Mm. And it's about being honest with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And Glastonbury, you said, is happening. I mean, you say in your book that one of my favourite bits is your friend, when you told your friend you're pregnant, your first friend was like, does that mean you can't go to Glastonbury? Well, fuck. Honestly, mate. Um, now you're going. Yeah, but do you know what? Get this. I'm going to enjoy the music. Yeah, listen. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that such a, like, a crazy thing to say, but I relate. My yeah. last Glastonbury was that. Like, we, I went to the healing fields and the green yeah. fields. I had the best time. This is an entire different world yeah. that you could explore of, like, sober lovely Glastonbury exactly yeah listen Josh thank you so much oh no thank this, you it's been a genuine this has pleasure been, no it's been so fun I've really enjoyed it do please rate review and subscribe to Changes it is so appreciated and if you fancy sharing it on social media too that would be amazing the more people we can get listening to these episodes the better we want to tell our stories far and wide Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Thanks for listening.